Welcome back. We've been following lots of criminal cases this week. The Idaho College murder defendant appearing in court. Oath Keepers leader sentenced to 18 years for seditious conspiracy. And the New York subway chokehold case, just to name a few. And with us to break down the criminal law on these cases is one of Chicago's most experienced and sought-after criminal defense attorneys, Stephen Greenberg, who is a friend of the show. He is a founder of the Illinois-based firm of Greenberg Trial Lawyers. He has more than three and a half decades of experience handling white-collar crimes, criminal appeals, civil rights, and uh, criminal appeals. He has a national reputation as a fierce advocate. He speaks and teaches on a variety of issues. You might know him from representing some high-profile defendants, including R. Kelly and Drew Peterson. Steve, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us on this Memorial Day weekend. And a lovely day it is. Hi, Karen. How are you? It is a lovely day. Um, let's. We had a lot to talk about, and I know you follow these things. Um, let's start with the sentencing of Stuart Rhodes. He's the founder and leader of the Oath Keepers. Uh, he was convicted of uh, seditious conspiracy for his role in instigating and planning the January 6th riots. He was sentenced to 18 years in federal prison. It's the longest sentence so far among the 500 or so defendants who have been convicted in cases related to this incident. What did you think of the sentence, and what? Do, how do you think the judge arrived at that, at that sentence? Well, the uh, sentence, I actually was surprised that other sentences have not been high, higher, but look at this guy. Uh, he is a Yale Law graduate, so he's obviously a very smart person, and what he was convicted of wasn't just the riots. He was convicted of planning to uh, bring down the government and, and stop the peaceful transfer of power. Pretty serious charge. And then he got up in his sentencing and said, if I had to do it all over again, I'd do it, which is not what you want to say at a sentencing. Of course, at a sentencing, you, you don't have to say anything. Uh, but if you say, say something, you want to say, you know, I'm sorry, I regret it. Uh, that's the time to sort of grovel. Um, The sentencing in the case is governed by the federal sentencing guidelines. So it's kind of a mathematical formula, and it gives the judge a starting point. The guidelines in this case were actually higher than than what Rhodes got. Um, Judges oftentimes will go below the sentencing guidelines for a couple of reasons. One, uh, they're very harsh, very harsh, um, and they fail to take into account sort of personal factors, someone's upbringing, what someone's life is like. Now, with this guy is a, is a Yale Law graduate, oh, he had a real tough life. But, uh, but many people do, and, and personal circumstances are reflected in the sentencing guidelines. But the other thing about it is if a judge gives you a sentence below the recommended guideline, it's almost immune from appeal. So Rhodes is going to end up doing the 18 years. So let's break this down a little bit. He gets up there and he says, you know, uh, like President Trump, my only crime is opposing those who are destroying our country. And he called himself a political prisoner. And as you said, this is the time for him to beg for the mercy of the court and to grovel or to apologize to the victims and apologize to the court. Do you have you ever had a client who refused to do that? And, and, And how do you convince a client to to do what's in his best interest, not what he thinks um, maybe his followers want to hear. Yeah, you, when you've got someone like Rhodes, you're not really dealing with the average client because the average client's going to listen to the lawyer and they know that they've 
made a mistake, even if they're innocent. You know, the worst thing a, a client can say at a sentencing is I was wrongfully convicted in that situation. And I've had lots of people who were wrongfully convicted and, and ultimately get out on appeal or, or we get a, other evidence. Uh, you want them to say, say nothing or, or still be apologetic. This guy has a cause, and when you've got a client who has a cause, you really can't control them. I'm sure his lawyers told him not to say anything. Um, he didn't help himself by saying anything. And, and he continued to perpetuate what I think uh, anyone with half a brain cell agrees is just a completely false and crazy narrative. Steve, um, we only have a minute before we have to take a break, but I, I, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, this case had to do with putting together thousands of texts and social media posts, and um, it, it was basically the organization of this January 6th uh, riot or insurrection, whatever you want to call it. And the question is, like, you know, you want if you want to criticize your country, you can do that. That's your First Amendment right. But when does that First Amendment right cross over into making it into a crime? When, when you threaten violence, when you threaten violence, you can say anything you want. For instance, you can say anything you want about the president. You can't threaten to harm the president, physically harm the president. Other than that, you can say anything you want. Same thing about the government. But when you incite violence, it's like yelling fire. You can yell fire. You just can't do it in a crowded theater. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about this Idaho murder uh, suspect, Brian Koberger. He is charged with killing four college students, and it's really captured the attention of the nation. It was a horrible, horrible crime. And uh, there are a couple things I want to ask you about. Steve Greenberg is with us. Uh, he's a great trial attorney. What is your number, just uh, in case anyone wants to contact you? 312 and thank you. I feel old, by the way, after that introduction. <laughs> yeah, three and a half. De- that was uh, three and a half decades. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about the Idaho murder suspect. He appeared in court this week for his arraignment. He's accused of killing four college students in their home. And when he was asked to give his plea, he remained silent. Have you ever seen this? And um, and why do you think he did this? Uh, I have seen it. Uh, typically here in Illinois. When uh, the defendants plead, the lawyer actually states it for them, and they don't speak. Um, He probably thinks that, uh, in his mind, it's convincing people, look, I'm not going to say anything. I'm so wrongfully accused in this. Uh, When you look at the facts of the case, there's something going on, and and he may not have come to grips. Uh, The evidence looks fairly overwhelming against him. But he just may not have come to grips with what he did. It might be uh, some kind of a split personality, although not an insanity defense. But, but, you know, he might be two different people, so to speak. Uh, but sometimes people think they're just sending a message. He's no different than Rhodes. Rhodes, I'm sure, thought when he was speaking that he was doing exactly the best thing for himself. And, and this guy probably thought the same thing, although... At the end of the day, it's not going to make a difference because no one's ever going to know it, and and uh, the judge could care less. And I don't mean to, you know, uh, say that every criminal defendant, you know, is bad judgment. But you know, if you make if you're making bad judgments to start an insurrection, or you're making bad judgments to kill four innocent college students, you you may not be making good decisions throughout your litigation either. You know, right? right. So. Well, it's- 
It's the old thing about organized crime. If it was so organized, they'd never get caught. <laughs> right. And, you know, I, I guess I my read on it was maybe a little different. Maybe I thought to myself that the prosecution and defense might be in talks about some sort of plea bargain because Idaho, of course, has the death penalty. That big firing squad is the method uh, these days. I think the lethal injection uh, fluids are, are hard to come by with, I don't know, uh, supply chain or whatever it is. But <laughs> but I, I, I just wonder if he thought it would be more inflammatory to say not guilty. Because, you know, people get upset when they have a defendant who they think is guilty and they say not guilty. Well, why did you Why did you say not guilty? Well, that's what that's what happens. That's what you do as, as a defendant. But do you think that could be something about that, that maybe his lawyer said, let the judge enter the plea, don't say anything, you're going to take responsibility for this and, and beg for your life? Uh, not really. I mean, the lawyer could have spoken up and, and said, my client is pleading not guilty. Yeah. Um, you know, I hate I hate to disagree with you on your own show, but uh, <laughs> you can <laughs> people people are going to be unhappy when 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 you have a criminal case. Somebody's always going to be unhappy with the outcome. If the defendant wins, people are unhappy, and some people are happy. If the defendant loses, if the defendant gets the death penalty, some people are happy, some people are unhappy. There, there's when when you start uh, handling a criminal case based on what the public wants. Then, then you've been in the business too long, and that's exactly what you shouldn't be doing. That's when we run into problems. That's when you get false, you know, false convictions and coerced statements and all that. When the end sort of just realizes the means. Couple things. Uh, we know that Koberger's father flew out to Washington State and accompanied his son back. They drove uh, cross country back to the home in Pennsylvania, the family home. And there was some talk in the media about whether or not the father could be charged with aiding and abetting. What would the prosecution have to prove to have the father be uh, found guilty of aiding and abetting? You know, uh, first, that the question is, what's aiding and abetting? So he certainly didn't aid and abet him in the murders themselves because it's after the fact. Perhaps some kind of a concealing of fugitive. Yes, if he knew that his son had done this. Uh, my guess is that the son called up and said, hey, Dad, things aren't going so well here. You know, I'm ready to leave. Uh, why don't you come back and, and drive back with me? Um as you know, I had some involvement with the Highland Park, with the father uh, of the Highland Park shooter yes. who's been charged. In, in that particular case, he owned the coffee shop that was around the corner from my house where I got coffee for 25 years every morning. Uh, and and they charged him with contributing to his son committing the shooting by getting the gun. I happen to think that's a stretch. It, it, I think it's a very dangerous line when we start indicting parents for the sins of their children, uh, because ultimately parents, you know, when parents look at a situation, even if their children has made a mistake, they're not thinking critically and they're not thinking objectively. They're thinking, uh, what can I do to help my child? And and I think we want parents to think like that. So um, I I seriously doubt if we're going to see anything happen to the father. The other thing for that also is if they were to charge the father with the crime, they would lose him as a witness because he would then, you know, assert his Fifth Amendment right 
to any testimony as opposed to uh, being able to use him if they don't charge him. That's a good point. And finally, on this topic, Steve, um, the case, at least at this point, is set for trial on October 2nd. Obviously, there could always be continuances. But the prosecution has to make a decision whether or not they're going to seek capital punishment in this case. And I, I can't imagine if they have a capital punishment statute, which they do, that this would be, not be a case, you know, this, this has to be a case for the death penalty. So, Let's just say that you're representing Koberger. How does this change your defense of the case, or does it change the defense if the death penalty is on the line? There's a couple of different views people have on this, and there's no right view. Um, First of all, the prosecution is going to have to talk to the families of the victims, and um, families have a great say in whether or not a case is a death penalty case. Uh, the families may not believe in the death penalty. They may not want the death penalty. Uh, the defendant and his lawyers might look at the evidence and say, look, we have zero chance of winning this case. We'll plead guilty if you withdraw the death penalty. Uh, that's what happened many, many years ago with Brian Dugan. And and he, he was a serial killer, and, and they uh, withdrew the death death penalty. It happens, you know, it happens with fair regularity over the years in Illinois when we had the death penalty. Um, so who, who knows uh, what they're going to do? And of course, even if they decide to go ahead with the death penalty, that could always change. Uh, to your exact question of, of how does a lawyer change how they approach it, um, different lawyers think think differently about it. Many people who do a lot of death penalty cases believe that uh, you know saving somebody's life and not having them get the death penalty is a win. I subscribe to the theory that uh, the case should be approached the same as any other case. You try and win the trial. If you lose the trial, then you try and mitigate the damage. But, um, you know, that's a decision that they have to make after they look at everything. We're talking to Steve Greenberg, uh, and we're talking about a variety of um, high-profile criminal cases. Um, and I want to talk, just we actually, we don't have much time. Can you hold up with us for one other segment? Sure. Okay. So listen, we're going to come back after the news, and we're going to continue to talk with Steve. And then after that, I will be taking your legal questions for a short period of time, about 15 minutes. Let me give out that number. The number here at the studio is 312 312- Nine eight one seven two hundred nine eight one seven two hundred, and the text is the same number. You'll get on with my producer Jack. He's a really nice guy, and you'll tell him your problem and your legal issue, and I'll hopefully be able to steer you in the right direction. If for some reason you would like to speak with me privately, uh, you can always contact me at my office. Uh, my phone number there is three one two. 332-7800 and my uh, text, I mean my um, email address is cake, uh, at, the best thing, the easiest I guess would be WGN at AskKarenConti.com WGN at AskKarenConti.com and Steve why don't you give out your number to our listeners if uh, anyone has a legal issue that has to do with criminal defense uh, this is the guy to talk to okay, so the ones I loaded are- it's, uh, Thank you, it's 312 
800-242-2711. Let's talk a little bit, Steve, about this New York case of the former Marine who put the homeless guy in the subway in a chokehold, uh, which resulted in the man's death. Daniel Penny uh, was charged with second-degree manslaughter. Um, what are your thoughts on this case? I know everyone has an opinion on it, and it's really polarizing, I think, uh, the public. I, I hear people say this guy is a hero. I hear people say he's a murderer. And, you know, tell me, break this down for me as far as defending this type of case. If you were Penny's attorney, what what would be your uh, thought process here? Uh, I would want to see the video that exists of this, which I have not uh, seen. I don't know if it's out there. I haven't seen it pop up anywhere. Um, And exactly why they felt the need to hold this person for so long. You know, it's sort of when I first looked at it, it it harkened back a little bit to the George Floyd situation um, where the officer sat on him for a while. And you wonder, did you have to do this for so long? Um, It it gets into, you know, people are afraid. Uh, People are afraid when they're on subways and people are afraid uh, when they're when they're going down the street these days. And so uh, I think people look at this case and they sort of view it through their own lens. Was this this person who got choked doing anything wrong? And if they were doing anything wrong, unfortunately, in, in today's world, some people feel they get whatever they deserve. Um, it, it, it's in large part a jury nullification case. Uh, do you remember the uh, the old um was it the son of, not the son of Sam, the subway killer, Berkowitz? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah no, it was, uh, it was Bernie Getz. Or Bernie Getz. Yes. Right, right. Berkowitz is the son so, of Sam. Right, Bernie yeah. Getz. And yeah, he, 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 uh, he basically unleashed on some guys on the, on the subway. He had been, I think, mugged before. He had a gun. They, the kids were threatening right. him, and he just pulled a gun out and shot him. Right, and got away with it. Yep. Got away with it. So, uh when, when you're defending a case like this, you're going to do everything you can to reinforce the image that this person was a danger to everybody that was there. And then when you pick your jury, you're going to, you're going to look for people who share those kinds of self-help uh, views. You know, we've seen a, a bunch of cases that have this issue of self-help or vigilante justice. Uh, I don't know if you followed them, but it was a case I think out of Kansas City where an older gentleman um, saw some kid on his front porch. A kid was on the wrong block. He was like one block off to pick up his little brothers. And and, and the guy in the house shot him on the doorstep. Another one was in the wrong driveway and the, the owner of the home shot and killed somebody in the car. So, you know, you're seeing these, these cases where people... People have guns and they're afraid and they t- take out their gun and shoot. You know, how how would you advise people? If, if you have a gun and everyone seems to have one these days, I mean, at what point are, do you have a right to take out your gun and use deadly force? Usually you have a right to use deadly force if you're in fear of deadly force yourself. So the other person looks like they're going to use deadly force on you. Or if someone crosses the threshold of your house, so someone kicks in your front door, you can shoot. doesn't matter if they're armed or not armed. As long as they've broken into that threshold of your home, you can do whatever you want. That's anywhere in the country, those two principles. What's happened, though, is you've got these 
states, and, and I don't agree with with this, but but we don't want to get into a discussion of politics. I don't think. No, we don't. <laughs> uh, but you've got we, you've got these states where they pass laws like the stand your ground law and in Florida that we've all heard so much about, or in Texas they've got some of these laws. And the question is where they're legalizing aggression, and then and then the person is is just saying, well, this person was in my car. You know, the guy who shot someone, uh, the the one in Kansas City is clearly was was just he saw an african-american kid on his porch and shot the kid i mean that i don't don't know how how they cannot make a good case on that that it's just a cold-blooded murder uh racially motivated and i'm sure that's what they'll end up end up doing on that case uh the person who got shot in the driveway there's no justification for that and people in my opinion who try and justify those kinds of situations are just bigots and, and they're, you know, that's the only way to put it. And, and I'm sorry some people don't like that. Uh, if you had to defend one of those cases, again, if you're in those areas, I'm sure you can find lots of other bigots who are going to give you a big attaboy, and that's what you should have done. But, you know, from a personal viewpoint, I don't think people should be out shooting people just because they're at the wrong house. And, and I always tell people, if you've got a gun and you've got a concealed carry, you should get some really good training to know when you're going to bring that gun out and shoot. Because, you know, uh, both I think in both cases, the, the person who shot in those two cases we talked about, Steve, I think they were older people. I mean, they're not going to see the light of day if they go away. I mean, that's they're going to be in jail the rest of their lives. And, you know, there's there's all kinds of all kinds of tragedy with these cases. And, and again... Right. So- you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you remember the Clint Eastwood movie a few years ago? It was sort of the angry guy next door. He was right, a really right. old guy. And yes. He, you know, that's what I think of when I think of these older people, someone who just hates everybody. Um, I don't for a minute think that uh, that in either case it was anything other than a conscious decision. Uh, and I don't think in either case that they were really fearful. I think that those people are confident that, that they can get away with it because of the way, you know, where they live and how people uh, view things. And, and they think there's enough people that think like they think. And I think it's, it's just part of an overall symptom, you know, where our country, for some reason, hate has become so prevalent uh, after all these years when you would think that it, things would be going the other way. Yep. Hate and fear, and I think that some mm-hmm. some sometimes uh, our politicians uh, may create an environment that encourages that. Because once you have fear, then 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 you have someone to be able to save you from that fear. I, I guess that's my view. Yeah. You think? Yeah, <laughs> I would say that's a pretty good view. Yeah. Well, let's let's turn to uh, a more practical uh, advice kind of thing. Memorial Day weekend is here. The summer is going to uh, stretch upon us, not not quite long enough here in Chicago. But there's going to be parties and backyard events and a lot of uh, alcohol being served. And um, while, you know, most of you think you'll never be arrested uh, for anything, this is something that people find themselves in the middle of an arrest 
because they went and they they uh, drove after drinking. And the first message here, of course, is not to drink and drive. It is so worth an Uber. I don't care if it's $100 or $150. The cost that you pay a Steve Greenberg to come in and have to defend you and lost work and maybe you'll get fired, uh, lose your freedom. It's just not worth it. Plan ahead. But if you are in a car and you are pulled over and the police want you to do the field sobriety test or take a breathalyzer, Steve, what is your advice to somebody? <laughs> that's a that's a very tough question. First of all, uh, I agree with you. Don't don't drink and drive. And if, if you even have to think about if you should do it, uh, you probably shouldn't. And nowadays, since there's so many alternatives, it's definitely cheaper uh, to take an Uber or something like that. Um you know, uh, drinking and driving, when you get pulled over for drinking and driving, um, they have some pretty pretty bad penalties that come into play, whether you're guilty or not. For instance, uh, just for getting pulled over, if you take a breathalyzer test and you fail it, you lose your license for three months. If you refuse to take the test, you lose your license for a year, which is is rough for most people to lose their license per year. As a lawyer, you want to tell people don't ever take a breathalyzer test. You want to tell people don't ever do the field sobriety test because all you're doing is creating evidence against yourself. Interesting statistic. Uh, The field sobriety test, which is, I don't know how familiar people are, where you walk a straight line, 10 steps, heel to toe, and then turn, or you uh, have to stand on one leg and raise the other leg up and and counter, you have to recite the alphabet backwards, are only 50 to 60% reliable in uh, predicting whether or not someone is intoxicated. And not only that, but the pass rate among sober people is somewhere between 50 and 60% also. In other words, it doesn't matter even if you're, you're not drinking. Most of us are half of us are not going to pass those tests, which are entirely subjective. Um, So from a legal standpoint, I would say sit in the car, keep your hands on the wheel, uh, give me your license and insurance and, and let them arrest you. And with, uh, you know what, we're, we're out of time, and I'm going to let you go and enjoy the rest of your weekend, but you're going to have to come back and talk to us about uh, more of these cases and as these other cases progress. Is that a good deal, Steve? Sure, anytime. And please give out your phone number for anybody who would like to reach Steve Greenberg uh, in Chicago. He's one of the good terminal defense lawyers here uh, nationwide. Thank you. It uh, were Greenberg. My cell phone is 312 399 Thank you, Steve. Thank you for joining us. And when we come back, I'll be taking your legal questions here. 312-981-7200.